All right, class, are we here? Some of us are anyway. Kelly, how are you doing today? Good. Did you find the study guide on the blackboard? Did you print it? Are you going to? Yes. Okay, good. Um, the best way to prepare for the exam on Monday is to print off the study guide, get out a piece of paper, and start writing answers to questions. I mean, that's what I'm going to have you do on Monday, so why not practice? Yes? I mean, why not just treat it like a test in its own right? right if you go through it, you'll be able to write an, uh, a well-formulated uh, good answer to every one of those questions and statements on the review sheet, then uh, you'll be fine on the exam. Right? It's not about trick questions that I'm not here to surprise you. you know, um, there shouldn't be any surprises on anything you see on that exam. Right? So if you can handle the review sheet and write out a well-formulated answer containing both nouns and verbs in many cases to those, uh, you should do okay. Right? Draw an amino acid. You, know, you should be able to, to do that uh, by then. A lot of the stuff we'll talk about today, of course. Right? But uh, tell me about the octet rule and why it's important. Why, is, why are bond angles important? What's it up with structure and function anyway? You know, what's reductionism? You know, all of these things uh, should be, sh none of these should, things should be new to you, right? And you should be able to write an actual well-formulated answer to all of them, right? Yeah. Uh, is it, is, do all no the problem. No. Whose is it from? Some other class. One of my, I, I lent him my book and then he said, here, I have a gift for you. There might be some similarities, but study guides are unique from instructor to instructor. Right? So I would stick with mine. Yeah, good idea. It'll be more, <laughs> it'll be more useful <laughs> to you. Right. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's a good plan. <laughs> Everyone should heed that advice as well, right? Not just, not just you. You'll be better. So why worry about it, right? Why, why make an issue out of it? It's not uh, true. This wasn't on my study guide. Yeah. This wasn't on somebody else's study guide. Why should I, have to, why should, why should I be responsible for this? All right, um, so today we're going to finish up chapter five, okay, um, which is kind of good because our first exam will then ca cover chapters one through five, okay, which is unit one of your book, and then we'll move on to, to cellular stuff uh, the week after, okay, so it should be all uh, very well organized. I think if you look on your syllabus, I am exactly where I'm supposed to be, right, in terms of, uh, of, of what's on the topic and, and what, what day we're at, so that's good, right, it's good to, it's good to stay on topic. Uh, we all know what we're in for and, and where we're supposed to be. Um, this class is not going to get easier after the first exam. It's not going to get any harder, right? Uh, but it's not going to get any easier. So um, you know what you're in for at this point. It's been long enough. You know how these things are going to go. Um, and you can anticipate for the second exam what kind of questions you might expect based on the material that we cover, which is going to be things in unit two, all these uh, cellular, kind of, cellular kind of concepts. But we need to finish chapter five, okay? Um, I usually don't say this, we might not actually make it until uh, the full time today, right? Because uh, I'm not going to, if I get done a little bit earlier, we're not going to go on to chapter six, right? Um, I'm going to, I have the study guide, it's posted when we're done with chapter five, uh, we're done with lecture, okay? So it'll be probably about an hour or 50 minutes from now. Uh, but then, whatever this case, I will meet you over for lab right afterwards, right? But How much time do you think you're going to have in between? So you'll have like 20 or 30 minutes. Yeah, yeah you might have 20 or 30 minutes. But I'm not going to alter anything about my lecture style in order to accommodate that, though. But, so you know, we'll be done when we're done. Or your mother, she will never let you miss class. It's probably true. Yeah, she's got time. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, so just to remind ourselves of what we were talking about, we were talking about carbohydrates. Um, a carbohydrate being, it, what a carbohydrate defined is what? What is the definition of a carbohydrate? Sugar? No. Energy source? No. Another guess? Uh, there's carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen in there. What's the definition of a carbohydrate? Everybody start digging. That's what we do with them. That's not a definition. They are organic, as are many things that are not sugars. You're going to know this by Monday, right? Yeah. And as soon as I tell you, you're all going to write it down again, right? You're waiting for me to tell you. Uh, any organic with a chemical formula CH2O multiplied by some number. C6H12O6, C5H10O5, C4H8O4, right? Uh, take that CH2O and multiply it by a number, right? Anything with that chemical formula is going to be a monosaccharide. 
Okay. If we take a couple of those monosaccharides and combine them together, right, we have a disaccharide. If we have several of them that we're adding together, we can have an oligosaccharide. Once we get those really long chains, right, those long interwoven structures that are made of those individual monosaccharide monomers, then we have a polysaccharide. Okay, does this sound familiar? Yes. Okay, the whole CH2O thing? That's the, that's the saccharide defined, okay? Um, so an energy source, that's good, but then it's not a definition of a sugar, right? That's, an ex that's what you do with it, okay? Organic, yeah, it's organic. A lot of things are organic, so that's not a definition of it. Um, define means define, right? Give example means give example. This will be good to know for the exam, right? Like an answer the question that I'm asking you as opposed to the question that you want me to ask you, right? So, all right. Um, so they can be structural and they can be used for energy sources. You use them for energy in the here and now, okay? Right now when you're doing things, you're combusting sugars, okay? You're not burning fat to do it, right? Um, if you don't eat anything, okay, for the rest of the day, tonight when you sleep, you might convert some of your fats into sugars for tomorrow, Right, uh, but as the course of your day goes on and you're walking around night, you're not actually burning any fat at all. Okay, um, you have to go through that glycogen molecule that's in your that's stored in your liver. Right, that's what's going to be providing these saccharides for you during the course of a day, and it's stored as a nice dense polysaccharide. And as you as your blood sugar might start to get kind of low, right, you'll get some chemical signals in your body which will stimulate that uh, some hormones and some enzymes to take that big glycogen molecule and start breaking off individual sugars from it and releasing them into your blood to keep your homeostatic level where it should be, okay? Um, so it's not long-term energy storage, it's short-term energy storage for you. The plants, however, do, okay, use sugars as long-term energy storage, and we call that molecule starch, okay? Um, it's nice helically coiled kind of thing, uh, kind of like, like this, right? So glycogen and starch kind of look similar to each other. Okay, which is why if you're going to have a lot of energy that you're going to use the next day, um, and it's the evening time, you can eat a lot of starch. Okay, you can carbo load, and that's going to be easily converted into anything that you would use as fuel. Right? A lot of the plants, uh, however, do use sugars as uh, structural molecules. We call it cellulose, and it's not a nice coil of sugars. It's kind of a chain link fence of sugars, so to speak. So both uh, glycogen and starches, you can go ahead and cleave those individual sugar molecules off of there. You can break that bond right there that joins those sugars together, okay? Um, what you cannot break is this bond right here that links one of those chains to another, okay? So you can break the, uh, the, the horizontal bonds here. You cannot break those vertical bonds between, those, between the chains. You don't, you're not equipped to do that. So you can eat as much of this as you want, and it's just gonna go in one side and, and out the other, okay? Good. So that's sugars, wrapped up nice and, nice and simple. Pretty sweet, eh? Pun? Pun? Sorry, don't humor me. Don't, don't humor me, don't laugh at that. Uh, okay, so number two, lipids. Okay, as we defined a sugar as anything with the chemical formula CH2O to the whatever multiplied, okay, we're gonna define a lipid, okay, is any organic molecule that you use in your body that is nonpolar, okay, it does not uh, dissolved in water. It does not have an affinity for water. Let's, we can call it hydrophobic. Hydro, hydro, water, phobia, fear. It fears water. I don't fear it, but you know, it, it, it likes to be, it's repulsed by it more than anything else, right? Um, so little or no affinity for water, okay? Um, and it, as you already know, Right, take a nonpolar liquid and a polar liquid and mix them together and shake them, and they'll stay nice and separated. You'll see this in the lab, okay, again today. Um, I give you salad dressing as a test of that hypothesis, okay? So um, it's not, uh, not something that's too foreign to you, believe it or not. Um, if you look at yourself as a living biological organism and just the fats, or I should say just the lipids that are within you, right, you can categorize those lipids into three different types, okay? You have your fats slash triglycerides, Okay, that is what you use for long-term energy storage. Okay, you kind of pack it underneath your skin. Some of us, like me, more than others. Okay, um, uh, the phospholipids, which are the, the, uh, the lipids that you use to make cell membranes. Okay, so every one of your cell membranes is constructed of a phospholipid, which is very, very, very similar to a triglyceride with one 
uh, slight difference between them, and the steroids, which you use as a hormone chemical signaling around the body. Okay, so all three of these different classes of lipid are, uh, are nice and nonpolar, and all used for different things. Making a fat is actually pretty straightforward. Okay, if you want to make a triglyceride, if you have some energy molecule or some, some molecules, some carbon-carbon bonds, because um, you went out to eat a lot of pasta last night, you ate an entire loaf of bread, and you want to store those sugars right, as a fat, you need to make triglycerides. That's that high-density energy storage molecule that you use. Okay? And, and believe it or not, they're actually pretty easy to do. Right? You take a small three-carbon chain okay, uh, with a couple of, what's this functional group down here? Hydroxy, right, or hydroxyl group, thank you, right? Um, and you attach fatty acids onto it, okay? This is glycerol. We're going to attach three fatty acids onto it, so we're going to call it a triglyceride. Sound good? The name describes what it is, okay? Now, I'm going to switch over to the document camera here and actually show you how we can do this. Check the source, document camera. All right. So here we have our, all right, where am I? I have to zoom out, bear with me. I don't know why I always, all right, we can see that, right? Here's our, Or hydroxies. Excellent. Okay, so here's our triglyceride, or sorry, here's our glycerol molecule. We have a long carbon chain that is storing a lot of energy into it. You can take three of them, like that. Okay. Incidentally, what is this thing up here? Carboxyl group, right? More functional groups. Remember I told you functional groups were important and you were going to see them over and over again? They're important. You're seeing them over and over again. True story. Okay. So what I can do, now that I have that, I can look at this and say, hey, look, if I take this, OH right there. I can combine it with that hydrogen up there, link them together, and produce a molecule of water. I can do that again here. I can do that again here. So when I make one of these, okay, I can take one glycerol and three fatty acids, and I can produce one triglyceride okay, and three molecules of water. So what this thing is finally going to look like, okay, a bunch of hydrogen up there, okay. Here we have the oxygens that we left behind from there, one, two, three. Here's that first carbon and the double bonded oxygen and long carbon chains that come off of the bottom. Okay, that's our triglyceride. So fatty acid, a long carbon chain with a carboxyl on the top. Okay, triglyceride, three carbon chain with three hydroxies on the bottom. Take water out of each of them, and what you end up with is a triglyceride. What do you think? I mean, if you, if you know your functional groups, it just ain't that hard, right? I mean, you can take the OH from one functional group and the H from another, dehydrate water out, and attach them together, right? That's what functional groups are used for. We're going to do that again when we attach amino acids together, okay? Just not, it's a good tool to use. If you have an OH on one functional group and on some excess hydrogen on another, you can dehydrate. You can pull water out, right? And you can shuffle that bond around, and you can link things together. That's one of the many reasons why functional groups are important. 
And you can use that water. It's called metabolic water, right? You can use that water in other places in your body to do all kinds of neat things, right? Any place else that you actually need it. All right. So here we took our glycerol and our three fatty acids. We dehydrated, pulled the water out, and made a big triglyceride. You can do that. You can draw a long carpet chain. You can put a carboxyl on the top. You can draw a glycerol molecule. You can make water, right? And what you're left with is a triglyceride. Now, if you look at those individual fatty acids, they can come in one of two sorts, okay? They can either be saturated or they can be unsaturated. What does it mean to be saturated? As much as, as much as you can, right? I'm trying to saturate your brains with biology, right? Which is a good thing. I'm trying to get in as much as I can. I'm going to try to pack it in there until you can hold no more, right? If we're calling this a saturated fat, what is it holding more of uh, than it possibly can, right? It's holding as much hydrogen as you can possibly get on that molecule, okay? Over here with the unsaturated fat, you have some double bonds that have formed. There's one right there. Here's one. Here's one, here's one, right? Um, in order to form those double bonds, we have to take that bond away from somewhere else, right, to get that covalent bond. So what we do, right, we can give up, give up some hydrogen in order to do that. So on these unsaturated fats, we don't have as much hydrogen on those chains as we possibly could. If we break this double bond right here, okay, then we can attach a hydrogen there and another hydrogen here. Right? Um, so it is unsaturated. It is not carrying as much hydrogen as it theoretically could. Okay? Um, and there are consequences to that. Okay? If we think about these molecules as they're presented, as nice two-dimensional projections of things, all of these bond angles right here are what? 90 degrees. Right? Add them up and you get your 360. If one of those right, is a double covalent bond, right? we don't have four bonds situated around that at molecule, we have three. Those are not going to be 90 degree bond angles. They're going to be more like 120s, right? And that's going to give you these cute little kicks off to different sides, nice little kinks in that molecule, okay? And there are consequences to that. If you look at those saturated fats, they have really nice long fatty acid chains. They're nice and straight 90 degree angles, right? You're going to be able to take those fatty acids and you're going to be able to pack them very closely together, okay? The consequences of this, okay, when you do that packing, if you're able to take those triglycerides and really stack them up tightly on top of each other, you're going to get a high density product of that, which is going to be a solid at room temperature. Things like butter and Crisco are good uh, saturated fat triglycerides. They pack very closely together and they form solids at room temperatures. Okay? Now, if we have some unsaturated fat that have really kinky tails on them, can you pack those close together? You can try. Right? Uh, but when you get these little kinks in these tails, they're going to start interfering with each other, right? You're going to be able to kind of get them associating with each other. But as you try to pack them together, those tails are going to start to kind of literally like this, right? They're going to start interfering with each other. They're going to start blocking each other and preventing you from actually packing it that closely. So if you think about the saturated fat, this is going to weigh a lot, right? I dare you to go and try to pick this up, right? Versus that, there's a lot less wood here. Right? But it takes up a lot more space. It's a much less dense product. Um, these two guys, the problem is not how do I pick up all this wood, it's how do I not poke my myself in the face with it, right? Um, so it's still a dangerous proposition. But it's really not a lot of wood at all, okay? So you end up with uh, triglycerides that are really kind of spread far apart, not very dense, and then as a result, those are going to be liquids at room temperature, okay? Things like oils, olive oil, canola oil, corn oil, and things like that. Nice unsaturated fats, keeping those, those kinky tails, keeping them from being able to pack very closely. Okay. Um, incidentally, just so you know, you can artificially make a vegetable oil act like a saturated fat. Okay. You can do it. I'll get the document camera out again to show you how we can do this. I'll try to anyway. Project source document camera. Okay. Lamp on. Okay. So 
hydrogens are going to be kind of, you know, off at different sides, whatever. Here's a nice unsaturated fat, okay? What we can do, we can add some hydrogen to this, and we can try to break one of these bonds right here by adding hydrogen. If we do that, okay, and break that bond and add hydrogen to it, we're going to get one, okay, or we're going to get two possible configurations out of it, one of which is going to be preferred and one of which is not. If we're trying to make this liquid act like a solid, right, we need to straighten out that chain. So we can end up with either that kind of arrangement, okay, where it kicks up to the top and holds it into place, okay, or we can end up with that kind of arrangement, where it kicks off to the bottom, okay? This arrangement, where that carbon chain goes up, actually makes it worse, doesn't it, right? Now it's even kinkier than it was before. We're going to call these things a cis fat, okay? These other ones down here, that tail is actually straighter than it was, okay? And this is going to start acting like more of a solid. We're going to call that a trans fat, and these are bad for you. So you're taking a vegetable oil and you're making it act like a saturated fat, okay? So how do you do this? You have to add hydrogen to it, right? You need to add hydrogen to make it more saturated, right? We don't want to saturate it all the way because then we're just making a saturated fat. We want to partially hydrogenate this vegetable oil. Right? So we call these things partially hydrogenated vegetable oils, which produces trans fats, which make pie crust flaky. And the product is called Crisco. Now, you can go to the store, right, and you can buy um, no non-trans fat partially hydrogenated vegetable oils, right? Um, and because now it's worse to have trans fats than lard, right, we want to get the no trans fat version, what you can do is you can completely hydrogenate this, and it will have absolutely straight tails, um, and it will have no trans fat, but it will once again be a fully saturated fat acting like a solid at room temperature. So it's like uh, the vegetable version of lard. You're artificially engineering lard out of a vegetable oil, right, to get non-trans fat, uh, you know, um, uh, hydrogenated vegetable oils. So um, they act like they do because of their, um, their structure in the, in the wiggliness, right, or the straightness of those, um, of those fats, right? Um, and the more kinky they are, the more liquid they're going to be, the more straight they are, the more solid they're going to be, right? So you've just learned about your diet, right, and what a partially hydrogenated vegetable oil and what a trans fat is and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, and these really, really long, straight-tailed fats, right, are going to have properties associated with them. If you eat a lot of them, right, they're going to go into your bloodstream and they're going to go around your body, um, until they reach the point in your body where you have the lowest flow velocity, right? And one of the places where that is, is in your coronary arteries. And they're going to get to that place and they're going to start kind of clumping together into a large fat deposit on your arterial walls. And then some things are going to get in them and going to start to calcify. And then when you hit 55 or 60, you're going to grab your chest and you're going to fall over, right? And, and bad things are going to happen to you, right? So as long as the fats that you ingest into your body are not, right, the kinds that are going to clump together and make big solid fat pockets at 98.6 degrees, then you'll be okay. So... Oils, there's a lot of calories in an oil, right? But it's not going to give you a heart attack, all right? It's those saturated fats that you wear those long, straight tails that can be solids at room temperature or at body temperature, right, where you run the risk of uh, getting arterial plaques and, and buildup in your arteries and things like that. So avoid the trans fats, yes? Partially hydrogenated vegetable oils, right? All the good and ultimately, this all started um, in World War I. All the meat was going over to Europe. Right, to, to feed the troops. And so uh, all of a sudden you get a lot of people in the United States wanting to get things like lard to make pie crust and things like that without having any available to them because it was all going over to Europe. So chemical processes, there was plenty of corn around. So it's like, let's, let's take corn oil and try to make it into a solid that acts like lard. Hence Crisco, right, came into, came into existence through the process of partial hydrogenation, which tastes very good. Don't eat Crisco, but I mean, like I said, it makes your pie crust nice and flaky and good textured and all that kind of stuff. So it's good stuff. Make a pie crust with oil and it's just not going to do it. It's just not going to be very good. Okay. 
So that's what the fat is doing, right? High density energy storage, right? If you want to lose a pound of fat, you have to burn 3,500 calories to do it, right? So there's a lot of calories in that stuff. If you don't eat, if you burn 2,000 calories a day and you don't eat all day long, you have not yet burned a pound of fat, okay? It takes about two days per pound of eating nothing to lose. It takes two days of not eating anything to burn one pound of fat, generally speaking, right? So if you want to lose fat, you either have to eat less than 2,000 calories a day or exercise and raise up your energy budget to more than 2,000 calories a day. Um, if you run at 2,000 calories a day and you burn 2,500, it's going to take you a week to lose a pound. So it's high density energy, right? A little bit goes a long way. A lot of calories are packed into a pound of fat. How does that make you feel? Good? Why is it so easy to gain weight and so hard to lose it, right? There's a lot of calories in that. It's easy to eat Crisco, right, and, you know, hostess pies and things like that. It's hard to get off your butt and run or not eat, okay? This is the way that, that humans tend to work, so. All right, um, so that's what it is. Where it is is another story, right? Um, I can go ahead and pack, this, uh, pack these fats anywhere on my body that I want to, but I don't, right? I just kind of put them around the midsection right under the skin, right, is where I tend to place these things. And there are advantages that are conferred because of that. If anybody has any kids, kids, anybody, kids? There's one person that has a kid in my other class, and it's good. You've seen a baby before, like young baby, and they're essentially, um, their skin is really, really soft. They have a lot of fat underneath the skin, right? And that has advantages to it. Fat is a very good insulator, right? Keeping babies nice and warm and things like that. And babies fall down a lot too, right? Um, if anybody's ever seen a penguin uh, leave the water, it's not an elegant thing. Getting into the water is easy. You go up to the side of the ice and just kind of bloop over, right? And you're nice and streamlined and you can fly. Right? Getting out of the water and onto the ice is another issue, right? Discovery Channel, anybody ever see this? Swimming around, swimming around, you rocket yourself up out of the water, okay? And you essentially belly flop onto the ice and trying to incur no damage along the way. It'd be nice to have a good fatty layer underneath your skin for protection, right? To, to, to buffer running into things. And I'm sure babies have this advantage as well. I mean, up until you're two or three years old, you're going to fall down like all the time. It's good to be padded, right? So having it placed underneath the skin, those triglycerides, you know, has, has other advantages that are completely independent of energy storage, right? So you get multiple benefits out of not just what it is, but where it is on your body too. The penguin obviously using it for both. Here, right, both the, I can do a belly flop onto the ice and I cannot freeze to death in, you know, Antarctica. Good. So that's triglycerides. Another lipid uh, that's important to us are the phospholipids. Um, it looks very similar to a triglyceride, does it not? How do we get a phospholipid? We take a triglyceride, pull off one of the fatty acid tails, okay, and we put a phosphate group on there instead. Remember your phosphate group? It's kind of weird. Remember the phosphate group? Flip through your notes quickly, 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 right? What's weird about, I mean, it looks weird. What's up with it? Uh, yeah, it doesn't obey the octet rule, so it's weird in that respect. That's absolutely true, right? Uh, what's all those things that are attached to that phosphorus on there that makes it so funny? It's a phosphorus in the middle. What's it surrounded by? Oxygen on all sides, right? A lot of electronegativity there, a lot of pulling on electrons, um, a lot of non-polarity there, okay? So you get this molecule where, for the most part, it's carbon-carbon bonds, nice non-polar covalent bonds, but then you get this thing up here in the top, right, which is extraordinarily polar, all right? Um, you're not changing anything that goes on down here, but this half of the molecule, because you've attached that phosphate group, right, is now going to be hydrophilic. The whole rest of the structure below it is going to be hydrophobic, okay? That kind of... Anybody ever, has anybody printed off the study guide yet? Right? Um, this kind of molecule that, where on the same molecule you have both hydrophilic and hydrophobic regions is referred to as amphipathic. And I believe there's a question on the study guide that says, what is amphipathic? Okay. So one molecule, and it's not as a molecule, polar or nonpolar, it's one molecule, but there are polar regions and nonpolar regions on it. Okay? So water can interact with and dissolve on this side Right? Water cannot interact with this side down here. So hydrogen bonds can form between this and water. Hydrogen bonds cannot form between this and water. Okay? Which give this molecule interesting properties. If you look at where we use these things, right? like I said before, this is the components of our cell membrane. If you look at a cell membrane up close, you see all of the hydrophilic heads are, if this is, if this is a cell membrane, this is the inside and this is the outside, 
all of those hydrophilic heads are in contact with water. All of the hydrophobic tails, or I should say none of the hydrophobic tails, are in contact with water. They're all in contact with other hydrophobic things. Okay, so like is dissolving like here. If you want to take some phospholipids and dissolve them in water, right, there's really only one way to do it uh, and have a stable arrangement where all the hydrophilic things are in contact with water and all the hydrophobic things aren't. You get a double layer of them. It's called a bilayer. It's called a phospholipid bilayer. And I'm going to get really tired of saying that in about three weeks from now because I'm going to say it over and over and over again because it's important, right? Um, so the water on this side and all the polar stuff that's dissolved in it, can it get over here to this side? No, it is blocked off, right? That polar stuff cannot make it through these nonpolar tails. These are going to make excellent cell membranes, aren't they? Um, most of the, have in your, the stuff that you have in your cells that are engaged in biochemistry, most of the molecules out there are polar and dissolved in water um, with solutes and solvents and things like that. Most of those things can't get a free pass, right? You, want to, you can bring those things in and out, but you have to usually have a dedicated protein channel to do it, right? So instead of having it be a free-for-all and you're constantly using your enzymes to try to keep up with your internal versus external solvents, you essentially take the scorched earth approach where you have a situation where very few things can pass through. And if you need to have something to pass through, you can just make a protein to let go ahead and go, right? So by itself, right, this is a very effective barrier, right? A lot of things out there are polar and none of them can diffuse through that membrane itself, including the water, including the water, right? So you can keep your inside stuff in and your outside stuff out with a minimal amount of work having to be put into it. Good barrier. Um, there's going to be all, when we talk about cells in a week from now, there's going to be all kinds of stuff inside of those cell membranes, all kind of recognition proteins, transmembrane proteins for active and passive transport and things like that. Right? And you can think of all those proteins that are going to be embedded in that cell membrane as doors, windows, mailboxes, that kind of stuff on a house. Right? If that's the analogy that we want to use, these phospholipids are the bricks. Okay, they really form the structural basis of these, of these cell membranes. So this stuff, right, that you're in contact with, it's all a lipid, right? So you're lipid-based. Hydrophilic, water-loving, it's going to dissolve in water. Hydrophobic. Like you said, when both of them are in the same thing, what's it called? Amphipathic. A-M-P-H-I-P-A-T-H-I-C. I did win the seventh grade spelling bee, just so you know. <laughs> A-M-P-H, I, so ampha, pathic, like this class is pathological, P-A-T-H-I-C, pathological studiers of biology, amphipathic. And it should be spelled on your study guide for you as well, because it's important for just this reason. Now, these are made of fats. Right? You see these big fatty acid tails, and we just talked about whether fats are solid or, or, or liquids at room temperature. Right? So if I take this cell membrane and I put it down to 30, 35, 40 degrees, what should happen to it? It should turn into a solid. Right? You can, I mean, you can take a saturated fat that's a solid at room temperature. You can heat it up and melt it. Right? Yeah. Who in here is melted butter and put something like shrimp or scallops or anything for that matter. Everything's good sautéed in butter. If you want to make something better, sauté it in butter and put salt on it. Goodness <laughs> sakes, it's not hard to do, right? Uh, which takes me over my 2,000 calorie a day threshold, I realize, but there it is. Um, uh, you can take a solid at room temperature that's a fat and you can heat it up and melt it. Likewise, you can take a liquid fat and oil and you can put it in the refrigerator and it will solidify, okay? If you have a nice fatty, I mean, those are the properties of fats. If you have a nice fatty membrane like this with a lot of these fatty acid tails and you cool it off, it should, by all rights, turn into a solid. And if you heat it up, it should, if they act like they do, turn into a liquid. Okay, so every cell membrane in your body is made of these things. So I ask, in the middle of wintertime, when you go outside, right, why do you not turn into a big ball of oil, although you sort of do a little bit in Virginia, Right? Or in the summertime, why do you not turn into a big bowl of oil? In the wintertime, when it's really, really cold, why do you not turn into a solid fat right, on your cell membrane? It would be gross if you did, right? But it's a very good question, right? Um, and that brings us to our third uh, class, the steroids, of which an example of is cholesterol, okay? Cholesterol is this kind of thing that you're not supposed to eat because it's bad for you and gives you heart attacks and all that kind of stuff. What cholesterol is really doing is temperature regulation and uh, viscosity regulation in your cell membranes. 
if you look right at a cell membrane, I'm going to go back a slide for just a second. If you look at a cell membrane with these fatty acid tails on it, um, if you want to find the cholesterol, they're going to be occasionally wedged in between these tails. There'll be cholesterol over here, one over there, one down there, one over here, right? Um, and they can dissolve in there just fine because they're a steroid, they're nonpolar, right? So they can kind of reside within those phospholipid tails, okay? Now, if we take the cell membrane and we start to cool it off, okay, and reduce the temperature of it, those little tails are not going to be able to pack that closely together because they're essentially being blocked by the cholesterol from getting too close. Likewise, if we start heating this up and start vibrating these things more and they kind of get a little bit of ooey gooey liquidy, right, that cholesterol will kind of work its way into those ooey spaces that are separating and fill up the gap. All right. So the cholesterol is essentially embedded within the cell membrane, right, providing the stability of viscosity for all of those cell membranes. So you don't turn into a big fatty solid in the wintertime and you don't turn into an oily mess or you don't turn into a fatty solid in the winter and you don't turn into an oily mess in the summer, as you should if you were just made of fats, right? Good. So uh, cholesterol being an excellent example of a steroid, right? What makes a steroid a steroid is this uh, yellow structure down here, right? Six carbon ring, six carbon ring, six carbon ring, right? And a five off to the side, right? All steroids are going to have this exact same backbone to it. And as you saw earlier, when I was showing you examples of different uh, interesting biological molecules and why functional groups are important, differences between steroids like estrogen and testosterone have nothing to do with this backbone. It's all the different functional groups you attach onto it in different places, right? Um, not a big difference between estrogen and testosterone. This is where are the functional groups, okay? Same chemical backbone that we use, our three six carbon rings and our five. Here's our three six carbon rings and our five. Here's our three six carbon rings and our five, right? So all steroids are going to have that thing on it. That's what defines a steroid, okay? And the properties of that steroid are going to be associated with what functional groups are attached to it and where. Functional groups. All right. So if you want to lower your cholesterol and your doctor tells you to go on a low cholesterol diet, cutting the fat off of your steak is not going to help you. That's not where the cholesterol is, right? It's in the cell membranes. So you need to eat things that have lower cholesterol in it. If you're going to eat the beef, go ahead and eat the fat because it's the tastiest part, right? Um, if you want to eat a low cholesterol, and I'm not in paid, being paid by the industry or anything like that, but if you want to eat a low cholesterol red meat, things like buffalo and bison are your best bet, right? They have very low cholesterol in their cell membranes, lower than any other red meat out there, right? And it's very good. Go to Ted's Montana Grill, right, and get the... And get, a, and get a buffalo burger. There's a good place in Alexandria um, called Overwood, and they have extraordinarily good uh, buffalo burgers, too. Um, really good, really good. And lower cholesterol and good red meat. Incidentally, one of the highest cholesterol values in a cell membrane is beef, okay? So, yeah, there it is. So what steroids basically do is regulate temperature? That's what cholesterol does. Steroids are chemical messengers around your body, right? Um, they're, 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 you can almost consider them part of the endocrine system. All right, so those are lipids. So your three varieties, triglycerides, phospholipids, steroids. On to proteins. Proteins are about half of your dry mass. What I mean by that, I take all the, uh, all the water out of you, okay? Um, about half of what's left by mass is gonna be proteins. You do a lot of stuff with your proteins. You have structural support, that's given to you by your proteins. I'm not talking about bones and things like that. I'm talking about the structure, right, of your soft parts. Like, I, I think, I, I don't know if this class or the other one, if I take your kidney out, right, and kind of hold it in my hand, it's not going to turn into a goo, right? It's going to maintain the structure of a kidney. So the, the structures that are holding your cells in place, okay, and giving those structures are protein-based, things like collagen, right? Uh, transport, okay, you can move things around with proteins into and out of cells. Right? You can communicate with other cells in your body uh, using proteins in your bloodstream. Uh, your immune system is protein-based, right? So you do a lot of things, right? Your, your entire metabolism is constructed of proteins, uh, namely enzymes, right? I should say. Okay. So they consist of one or more polypeptides. Um, a polypeptide is a bonded-together string of amino acids, okay? So you take a couple of amino acids and you bond them together and you end up with a polypeptide, right? Um, I think I have one more 
sheet that I can use with the document scanner up here that I can use. Ooh, I do. Lucky you. You know what a polymer is, right? Anybody else know what a polymer is? If you polymerize something, what do you do? Do what? You're not, you're not willing to repeat at a louder volume? <laughs> you do. You do. That's exactly what it is. You can take a monomer, okay, like a single glucose molecule or an amino acid, and you can make a polymer out of it by adding a lot of them together. You can take a single Lego, okay, and you can make a polymer of Legos by taking individual Legos and making a long chain out of them. Right, so the individual unit is a monomer, things like glucose, things like an amino acid. The polymer is making a large chain out of those, just adding them together to make a large chain is what we call a polymer. Okay. So, I did it again. Momentarily blind us all. Uh, I can use this one. I've got one. Never mind. Okay, so um, what an amino acid is, take an atom of carbon. On one side, let's have one of those. What is that? What is that? It's an amino group, okay? And I'm going to attach on this side one of those. What is that? Carboxyl group. Carboxyl group. I'm going to put a hydrogen up on the top for a valence placeholder, and I'm going to have an R group on the bottom. An R group is anything you want it to be, right? You can have hydrogen. You can have another carboxyl group. You can have a carbon ring. Right? You can put all kinds of things down there as your R group. What the R group is determines what amino acids you, you, you have. Okay? But all amino acids are going to have this basic structure in place. Okay? So what I can do, I can take another one. Hang on now, hang on. Yes, but hang on, right? Here's another one. What you can do, here's a, an OH down here and there's an H. You can go ahead. Now you can say it. Take the water out, dehydrate it, and you're not breaking this bond and forming a new one. You're shuffling this bond to that, right? So what you end up with is this. It's called a dipeptide. Yeah. Okay. Hydrogen on hydrogen. One, two, three. One, two, three. We're good. We're good. All right. Um, so this thing right here, that bond between carbon and nitrogen, is called a peptide bond. Okay? A peptide bond is a really specific thing. Right? It's a covalent bond between carbon and nitrogen. So when you call something a polypeptide, right, you're not referring to the amino acids, you're referring to the bond. Right? So you have many peptide bonds lined up. And the way that you do that, of course, is by linking many amino acids together. So again, we're doing the exact same thing we did with the triglyceride, aren't we? Right? We have a functional group over here that has excessive hydrogen on it, a functional group over here that has a hydroxy group on it. Pull the water out and make a bond. Functional groups are useful. Yes, yes they are, right? You can use them to, uh, I need to make a bond eventually out of this thing, so uh, I'm going to go ahead and put a couple of functional groups on. At least one of them has got to have a hydroxy, and the other one has extra hydrogen. If I can do that, I can just pull water out when I need to, right, um, and go ahead and bridge that gap. Or if I want to break that bond, what do you think I do? Put the water back in, right? It's called hydrolysis. Hydro? Hydro, water. water, lysis, splitting. Yeah, so you can split that bond by adding the water back in. 
Nice. Handy. Convenient. We call this the IKEA principle. IKEA? IKEA? Yeah, you know, you, you, can, you can get anything, right? Yeah, the front, you get chairs, you get sofas, you get tables, you get benches, you get beds, whatever you want. And all you get is that one little wrench, that one little hex wrench, right? Um, to assemble all of these things, you have one tool, right? That stupid little wrench. And I got about a thousand of them in my toolbox just for some reason I keep them, but I'm not sure why, right? Um, when you're going to make a big polymer out of biological molecules, you only need one tool. All you have to do is be able to, to condense, pull water out, right, and put water back in. doesn't matter what it is. Want to make a triglyceride? Dehydrate. Want to make a protein polymer? Dehydrate, right? You use one tool to, to rule them all, so to speak. A little hex wrench of biology. Nice. Okay. So to recap, this is what I already told you, right? Um, all amino acids are going to have the same construction. It's all going to start with this one central carbon. All right. On one side, you're going to have uh, the amino group, just tag a functional group onto it. Occasionally, they can be ionized like this. Remember those that two extra electrons that are floating around out there in that nitrogen? They can attract hydrogen on this end, right? So that might be, uh, that might be a, a, an H3 over here, but that's an ionic attraction right here. It's not a covalent bond, right? Um, the carboxyl on the other side, okay? An R group at the bottom that is going to be different from one amino acid to another. We'll talk more about this when we talk about DNA replication and, and protein building later on in the semester. And you have an extra valence electron on the carbon that you need to do something with, so we can just slap a hydrogen on there and you know, be done with it. Valence placeholders, I like, to call, I like to call hydrogen. I don't want anything else structural there, so I just need to kind of fill up that space. So hydrogen is good for that. But they're all different, however, in that, in that R group. How is it different? Uh, you can attach anything you want down there. Any other little side chains you'd like. Rings, branches, small molecules, big molecules, whatever you want. Proteins, what do you think? Cool. Yeah, it's all good. Nice. So again, right, here's my amino acid molecule right here, hanging out there just kind of by itself, a good monomer. Here's another one over here, and we want to attach them. So we do. We pull the water out, and we make a peptide bond. Now we want to attach leucine onto that. Here we have methionine and alanine. So here's the R group for methalanine. Here's the R group for alanine. Here's the R group over here for leucine, right? So we can attach any kind of different things down here. We always have the same backbone structure, though, okay? So we can go ahead and attach that onto there, pull another water molecule out. Here we have tryptophan, that thing that we get in Thanksgiving turkeys that may or may not make us really, really sleepy, or it's the 9,000 calories we ate, it's one or the other, right? Um, and this has a really big, complex, dual-ringed R group on the, on the bottom of it. Fairly interesting, right? We can go ahead and attach that, pull some water out. So here we have a polypeptide. There's a peptide bond, there's a peptide bond, there's a polypeptide bond, or this is a peptide bond, so this makes this a polypeptide. Four amino acids long, perfectly wonderful protein. Polymer of amino acids. Nice. So if they have an actual biochemical role, if they're actually assisting in the construction or destruction of large or small molecules, we call them enzymes, okay? The thing that actually facilitates the biochemical reaction. It doesn't make biological reactions happen that wouldn't happen by themselves. It just increases the rate of them by giving them a place to happen. Okay, and facilitating the nature of that reaction. Again, we'll talk about enzymes a little bit more later on after we talk about cells. Okay. Um, so here we have a lovely enzyme that is a large chain of amino acids that has been uh, formed into a three-dimensional structure. And it has a place on it right here where sucrose fits. Okay, the sucrose is going to go ahead, a good disaccharide, right? The sucrose molecule is going to fit right into that thing. We're going to add water and we're going to hydrolyze. Okay, and that molecule is going to come apart into two, into fructose and glucose. That's going to pop out of the enzyme, and the enzyme is going to be ready to get another sucrose molecule and split it apart. So this reaction can happen by itself, right? But if we have it facilitated and assisted by an enzyme, it can happen about a million times faster. Okay, so the rate that you live your life, right, essentially, and the rate that you perceive existence in every way, essentially, is the rate that your enzymes are functioning. Right? Um, all of your biochemistry, all your protein pumps, all your proton pumps, right? all of your um, neuronal activity, okay? all of the biochemistry that's happening, your digestion, all of that is occurring at the rate of enzyme function. 
okay? Um, the way that you perceive things through your senses is occurring at the rate of, of protein function, right? Uh, which is pretty neat. So um, if they have this biochemical element to them, right, if they're actually making a reaction happen that wouldn't normally happen by itself, or at least increasing the rate of it, I call them enzymes. So enzymes are a protein. Um, if they really just have a structural basis, I just tend to call them proteins or structural proteins. But they're all, uh, uh, they're all long amino acid chains, just formed in different ways and with kind of different kinds of structures. So when we think about how you actually make a protein and get to that three-dimensional structure that actually has a function to it, right, we can think about levels of structure associated with it. So we started off with just what amino acids am I laying down here? I had isoleucine, leucine, glycine, tryptophan, whatever that sequence was, right? So that sequence of amino acids that I'm actually designating there is primary protein sequence or the primary structure. So when I say on the exam, what is primary protein structure, you're going to say, it's the sequence of amino acids, okay? Um, different amino acids are going to have different R groups. Those different R groups are going to start interacting with each other and giving you ultimately different shape based on the structure of them and that sequence of amino acids as they lay it down, okay? So primary protein sequence is that sequence of amino acids. Really just rattle them off as you go from left to right. What amino acids are they? Which if you take a biochemistry class, you will have to know. We don't have to do it here. There's secondary structure, okay? Once I have that primary structure in place, that whole string of amino acids is going to clump together into a series of coils and folds, okay? The coils we call the alpha helices, the folds we call beta pleated sheets. They're kind of like the, the kind of foldy room dividers, you know what I mean? Yeah, and these are really like big slinkies. They really are. So there's coils and folds. I don't care if you call them alpha helices and beta pleated sheets or not. You can just call them coils and folds if you want to. That's fine with me, right? That is secondary structure. Once those coils and folds are formed, right, the whole thing is going to spring together into a three-dimensional arrangement, okay? So here, within this three-dimensional structure, you can see the coils and folds within it. Okay, once you finally get to the tertiary structure, right, the, the third level of protein structure, the three-dimensional arrangement, now you finally are at a level where you can actually have this thing working as what it's supposed to be doing. Okay, now you might start getting enzymatic action or you might have start having some sort of structural element to it. With primary and secondary, you're not quite up to function yet, you're still at form, right? Once you hit tertiary structure, then you have the risk of this actually doing something in your body for good or ill, okay? Uh, when we were talking about functional groups, I talked about the, the sulfide, the, the sulfide functional group, and I, I might have said that it's only really good for one thing, right? Some of these R groups, okay, that make amino acids have sulfide functional groups attached to them, right? Um, if you have a sulfide functional group over here on this R group and one over here on this R group and you put them close together, those sulfur atoms can form a covalent bond between them, and that is a really, really strong covalent bond, okay? If I do this, form a covalent bond between this R group and that R group, I sort of lock the structure of this protein into place by doing that. I've kind of anchored it, okay? So I take this thing and I kind of wrap it around and bend it a little bit and make a bond right there, right? And kind of anchor those two regions together. So those interacting R groups are gonna be providing stability for that three-dimensional shape. And the disulfide bridge is one of the strongest ways that you can do that. That's really the only thing that the, that the sulfide functional group is used for. But it's important for obvi obvious reason, you know? Good. Three-dimensional arrangement, that's tertiary structure. And quaternary structure, not all proteins and enzymes have quaternary structure. Some of them do, some of them don't, okay? Many enzymes in your body kind of stop at the tertiary structure phase and all that's fine, right? Occasionally you get enzymes and proteins that have quaternary structure, which is a, a metastructure, okay, a composite structure of several tertiary structured polypeptides. So hemoglobin is a good example of this, right? Um, all four of these subunits here on this hemoglobin molecule are a complete independent tertiary structured protein, right? Um, the hemoglobin molecule though comes into existence and comes into function when four of those come together and interact and lock into place, okay? Collagen, which you use to make your skin nice and soft and springy and things like that, is another example. Uh, the collagen uh, protein is three tertiary structured coils okay, that are, are braided together, which are going to provide a nice elasticity to it, okay? 
Um, so taking several tertiary structured polypeptides and kind of linking them together into a larger metastructure, we call that quaternary structure. So I can ask things on the exam like, what are the four levels of protein structure? Name and identify the four levels of protein structure, blah, blah, blah. You can say primary protein sequence, coils and folds, three-dimensional arrangement, and meta-arrangement where you have several three-dimensional arrangements locked together, one, two, three, four. Um, are they easy to remember? Primary, secondary, tertiary, quaternary? Mm -hmm. Primary, one, secondary, second, right? Tertiary, third. And, you know, I actually had a student on exam saying, I, I named them first, second, and third, and fourth because I couldn't remember the other ones. Like, you couldn't remember primary, secondary, tertiary, right? So it's, the names describe what they are. Don't make it harder than it is. Good? Good. All right. So although this is an extraordinarily small image, right, uh, you can still see what's going on here. The internestedness, okay, uh, of these different kinds of structures. Um, we could go back and talk about this as a hierarchy again, couldn't we? Right? Um, the quaternary structures are composites of tertiary structure. The tertiary structure, you can see the coils and folds within it, are composites of the secondary structure. The secondary structure is emergent from the primary structure. It's all that first day stuff again, you know, repeating a repeating philosophies. Now you can wreck them fairly easily, okay, by denaturing them, okay? I denatured some proteins for breakfast this morning. You, you might have as well, all right? Um, if you can change the environment of these proteins by doing things like heating it or adding an acid to it or increasing the salinity of it or something like that, you can do the same denaturization as you would if you cooked it without the application of heat and with the anti, without the antimicrobial benefits of heating something up, right? But you can cook things in lemon juice. It's called ceviche, right? When you do it with seafood, it's really good, good, good stuff, right? It is seriously being proteins that are being denatured just like cooking it without damaging the seafood by heating it up. The worst thing you can do to a marine organism is cook it. They're always best eaten raw, but that's just a personal preference. Anybody else? Yeah. Sashimi, right? Good stuff. Uh, but like I said, that's just me. Your grade in this class is not dependent on your consumption of raw seafood at all. Okay, but you can do it. Um, and you can do that temporarily. All right? You can change the heat, change the pH of a protein a little bit. Right? And it will kind of change the shape. You change the shape, you change the function. Right? Um, and if you reduce that heat or take that salinity away or take that acid, acidity away, um, it will revert back to its native arrangement and it will work just fine. Right? However, if you can really extremely change the environment, a lot of acid, a lot of pH, right, um, a lot of salt, a lot of heat, you can permanently wreck it by actually reshuffling and forming new bonds around, right? You cannot uncook an egg in this case. You denature it until it's, it's essentially wrecked. You form new bonds that are, that are permanent, okay? So that's what you're doing here, right? You're denaturing proteins. You're taking them out of one arrangement and you're, you're bringing them into another permanent one. And the fourth, okay, the fourth biomolecule that you're constructed of, the nucleic acids, of which there are three. There's DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid. There's RNA, ribonucleic acid, take the deoxy off. And a third one, ATP, which you use to carry energy around your body. So you should have been scratching your head earlier when we were talking about these long chains of amino acids. You should be asking yourself, well, those are pretty complex things, and I have a lot of these proteins in my body. Where do I get the instructions for making these big proteins? How do I know what the amino acid sequence for B should be if I need to make a protein to break, across, to break my sucrose molecules apart? Okay? So there's only one way, really, to make an enzyme that works the way that you want it to do. Right? You need to have a very specific arrangement of amino acids in place to do that. Okay? That's why you're going to get the coils and folds you get. You're going to end up with that three-dimensional arrangement and therefore that function. Right? So there's not a lot of margin for error on these things. Right? So you need to have a specific set of instructions on how to get primary protein sequence. And you do. It's called your DNA. That's what your DNA is actually doing. It is not the blueprint for life. It is not what makes me me. Okay? Um, it's not these big, fluffy, ridiculous answers with no content, right? If I ask you on your exam, what does DNA actually do, and you say it's the blueprint for life, you will receive no points for that answer, right? There's no content there. If you asked me that, and I said, oh, well, it's a blueprint for life, would you say, oh, yeah, great, that really tells me a lot. That doesn't tell you anything, 
right? Um, it's important for something, but you really don't tell you what, right? We want to be pragmatic, practical, and concrete in this class, right? Um, what that nucleic acids do, what that DNA is, right? It is essentially encoded primary protein sequence, right? You don't use, it's not amino acid based, obviously, it's those A's, T's, C's, and G's, right? And, you know, adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine, right? And the order of those A's, T's, C's, and G's, right, are going to correspond to primary protein sequence on an enzyme or a structural protein, okay? Um, so that's kind of good. It's kind of good, but you have a lot of proteins in your body, tens of thousands of them. How much DNA must you have to code for all of those things? About six feet in every cell in your body, okay? A couple billion base pairs long. Um, each one of those little chunks of DNA that codes for a protein, right, we're going to call a, what are you wearing? Genes? Genes, okay. Each one, that's what a gene is, right? A segment of DNA that codes for a protein, that codes for a polypeptide. 